0: Hi, I am Olumide Olainka. A big hello and welcome to the Startup Lagos podcast, a podcast dedicated to highlighting the bubbling scene of the growing startup community of the city of Lagos. On the show, get to hear inspiring stories from founders, entrepreneurs, investors, corporates, and other ecosystem stakeholders. To subscribe to us, visit podcast.startuplegos.co Stay tuned with us, stay pumped.
1: I'm Simon, Aderinola. Simon is the country manager, is country director for Africa's Talking. Oyinka Akuma. Oyinka is the CEO and founder of um, Farm Crowdy. Yeah, anyway. Okay, um, Chinedu Asodo. Chinedu is the chief technology officer and co-founder of Max.ng. And Vivian, Vivian Walker. Vivian is the founder, Medsaf. Okay, and like I said, I'm David, and I'm the editor of Business Insider. All right, um, I take right. So we'll start with um, proper introductions. Just your name, um, what you do, and what your startup does. Start from you, Chinedu.
2: Thank you. Um, so my name is Chinedu Azudo. I'm founder and CTO. I want to give you Chief Technical and Chief Technology Officer. I'm still fighting people. I'm co-founder and CTO at Max. Um, I'm in charge of your product teams, marketing teams, operations, um, and a lot of what happens on the inside. Um, What we do at Max, we provide safe, affordable, and accessible motorcycle taxis um, to 1 billion Africans. Um, So we've started out in Lagos. um, We'll be doing our first city expansion um, early next year. We have about 400 drivers active any day um, across board. Um, about another 600 drivers in the pipeline. So we hope to hit 2,000 by the end of the year. Um, super excited about what we're doing, and look forward to be able to serve each and every one of you. So if you're interested in learning more about what we do, um, please hit me up. I'll be at the back at the end, or send me an email to chinedu at max the Right. Um,
1: just before there was, I was at the Microsoft for Africa Fireside Chat a few weeks ago. There was an interesting stat you shared about um, what happens after 7 p.m., yes. the percentage of your riders. So could you just share that with you? All right,
2: cool. so after 7 p.m., we found
1: that um,
2: after 7 p.m., especially across Lagos, more than 70% of our riders, passengers at that time, are women. Um, so I mean, obviously, the reason we think is because, because we have proper identity solved, we have um, proper regulation, and we're able to do proper tracking, I mean, a lot of women who would ordinarily take an Okada or not just take anything, find us to be a safe alternative. Our bikes are super comfortable. Um, They're very big. So, I actually drove one here. So, if you want to test it out, I'm happy to, like, give out rides at the end of the day.
1: Vivian?
3: I think I will take you up on that. I think so. So, my name is Vivian Nwaka, and I'm co-founder and CEO of Medzaf. And Medzaf is a Supply chain management solution for medications across Africa. Um, What we do is two things really well. Um, We get medications directly from manufacturers. Uh, We aggregate them, do quality control checks and uh, balances that are in place, and then we get those medications directly to hospitals and pharmacies. So we're looking to streamline the entire procurement uh, process, and then we're looking to give them access to safe and quality medication at an affordable price. Um, but the other thing is, is around this supply chain and this movement of medications from manufacturers all the way down to even a, a patients, um, we're building tools and value-added services to improve Um, that access and that streamlined process for medications through the supply chain. And so we work with manufacturers, other distributors, and even have tools um, and products for patients as well um, to make sure that everyone has access to safe and quality medication.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Um, When you go?
4: Okay. um, So first, please, can we exchange this? Yeah,
1: thanks.
4: Sorry, I had to do that. The light is affecting my eyes um, over there. Thanks. Um, my name is Onyeka Akuma, and I'm the founder and CEO of Farm Crowdy. Farm Crowd is a digital agriculture platform that connects small-scale farmers with investors for the purpose of boosting food production in the country. Um, we we went live in November of 2016, and since then till now, we've worked with about 7,000 small-scale farmers across 10 states in Nigeria. Uh, We've been able to um, raise a couple of millions of dollars for these farmers to work on rice, maize, cassava, soya beans farms, and chicken farms. And at the end of the day, people come on our platform, invest or sponsor through our platform with these farmers, Um, enjoy the benefit of working as partners with the farmers, getting updates in the form of pictures, videos, and text, about what the farmer is doing. They can also do farm visits um, and meet their farmers. And then at the end of the day, they get a return of their sponsorship plus um, a percentage of the profit that um, comes from the harvest. i
5: Simon Adirin Lola. I'm the country director for Africa Talking. It's a Kenyan based company, so it's eight years old as a Kenyan company, but in Nigeria it's under two years old. The firm is essentially focused on developers. And the focus on developers is such that there is an assumption that somewhere in the head of these young men carrying young men and women going around with their laptops and learning to code, somewhere in their heads lies the idea that will impact the average man on the street, and make life better. With that assumption, we then ensure that the APIs and tools we make available for them to develop their products and monetize their product are done in very simple steps. And so, at whatever level of a developer proficiency you find yourself, beginner, intermediate, advanced, we will find you useful. And in fact, The partnership we try to also have with various incubator firms is such that we are not competing. The usual incubator arrangement is we look for topmost talent. But we have decided that our approach is different. So top talent is fantastic. But we also tell ourselves that it's not the guys that come out with first class that eventually turn out to be the guys that are running big businesses at the end of the day. So our approach is different in that you either um can become a staff of ours when we run you through our process or we position you to be employed by blue chip firms or we prepare you to run the business yourself
1: okay so you hold on to that
5: we are co-hosting we're co-hosting this um, session together so do you want to start um okay so maybe i could start with a little background Um, So, in my former life, I used to run a value-added services company. And so, the first thing we did... So, I used to work in Ghana, then I came back to Nigeria. And the first thing we did was get connected to the four big telcos. So, the usual value-added services you get, uh, informational, entertainment, financial information, and all that, was the business we were running at the time. In 2011... 2010-2011, the CBN released the framework for mobile payments. And looking at what had happened in East Africa, everyone was like, yes, it's going to happen here too. Of course, we know how that story went. But the point I want to bring out is I shifted then from value-added services, mainly telco, um, into the payment space. And we found that one of the challenges with mobile payments, adoption, and penetration in Nigeria was the problem of distribution. So the products could be lovely, but if you cannot get to the guys who really need it, um, we really are not solving any problem. And we noted that most people who were launching services were starting from the convenient mode, which I call... The, you go from the known to the unknown. So if you are launching a service, you like to start in Lagos, Abuja, Potakot, and tell yourself that the hinterland, we can get there later on. This is where the money is. And if you and I and every other person is launching services that way, we will continue on the same expressway and have the same experiences, and we might not move the needle in any way. So we decided that we needed to start the journey, flip the direction of the journey, and do hinterland towards... Uh, The developed part of town and um, that we needed to do by creating a startup at the time Um, we identified the need we looked at what it will cost us if you guys got themselves uh, committed to doing something i remember one of the first meetings on this was uh, at a sushi bar in london where i and a few friends met together and we said how do we solve this problem and we need to put money behind it. It's not a case of presenting lovely PowerPoint slide decks to somebody who has money, and you think he will just bring money out. Put something, let tire hit the road, and when people can see what you've done in six months, one year, then they can start talking seriously with you. I'll still build on this as we continue, but that uh, tells you a little about my background. Okay. Um, give mic to
1: so provide some background as to how... Um, Max.NJ was born, right? And then initial funding. Okay. That's a very
2: interesting question. I was born. I feel like your father. <laughs> okay, so um, so Max was co-founded by Tayo, Bamiduro and myself. Um, we both went to business school at MIT Sloan. Um, we met when we were in school. So we had been one of... I'd come in with Krakra, worked in investment banking. I was tired of Yankee. I wanted to move back to Nigeria. My mother insisted that I must go to graduate school. Or you cannot come back and be cutting PSC up and down. Nobody will give you work. And I'm like, I don't want work. It's like, I don't care. So we went out of school, um, got in, started the program. And um, that particular semester, I think it was my second semester, I was looking around and saying, so who are the folks who are moving back to Niger? Everybody's moving back to Niger. Once you actually talk about what are you going back to do, and it's like, yeah, you know, we'll figure it out. Figure it out. That's not like it's calm to me. Because my philosophy is that anybody who fails to plan, plans to fail. Um, So obviously, I started working on some stuff I thought was cool. My mom works in the Ministry of health. And as a result, I I have two younger sisters who are doctors. My father is a doctor. My mother is a doctor. So medicine wants to kill us in the house. So it was one of those things where I had a lot of data around infant mortality, child um, maternal mortality at birth and stuff like that. So I wanted to build up a business that targeted the mother and child. Um, I'm for the long tail of the market, so the people who you seem who seem to not have that much money. Um, so we had, I was trying to build out something then and I was just like, so how do you move stuff from point A to point B? I'm like, who has worked in Conga or Jumia here? And then they pointed me to Tyo. So I was like, yeah, how far? You know, we had a chat. Guy yeah, was like too serious. I'm like, all these NBA people, you want to come and kill yourself with book? Uh, so we talked, 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 and he turned out he had done work at Conga, part of the team that launched Conga's logistics business and he was exploring a project in class that would help them improve on Congress logistics. I'm like, hey, look. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the logistics problem so I can help you guys out. Um, so I go in offering to just be another smart person, quote unquote, in the room. And then we went there, the business idea seemed interesting. We were talking, talking, talking. A few weeks down the line, I'm like, so I actually know how to write software. I can build an MVP. So I start building out something and he started thinking about the numbers. I'm like, yeah, I also build financial models. I mean, I'm a banking guy, so I can do all this shit for you. So I started building out the financial models, and then the semester ended. And at the end of the semester, I decided that, yeah, I think I'm gonna go out to Nigeria and do this, but I need to know that this is actually viable in the market. Because I decided that that's mother and child thing. As interesting as it was, this seemed like a bigger problem to solve. So I took an internship at BJL Securities in Marina, um, and I came back to work as an intern. Wala. i was living in badore with my auntie and there was cow but i said she it's logistics i want to come and do let us be entering down for big mistake i thought to four suits that period because i'm six foot six so if i don't get that front seat and I die i might as well better be the conductor in the bus because it was like a waste of time so you rush 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 you drag, drag drag after two weeks i told my auntie that this battery is nice so but i need to move closer to work so i moved to phase one still the same damn mess all that stuff and i was just like after a while i was clear that there was a real problem because you get to work you're so tired right work hasn't even started and then you see people people are sleeping i can understand this and i'm like yeah you know after this struggle i've struggled i'll be sleeping too but and then you do the work lunch time there's all these challenges as to where do you get food because i'm looking at the food and hmm i ate from university but this one it was like it has three eyes inside so we did that, and it was just one of those things where you get all the information, and you realize that there's a big problem that needs to be solved, right? So I went back to school, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm doing this full time." And Ty was like, "Yeah, he's doing this full time too." So we started working on it the last um, last semester of of our program. And um, long story short, we're here, and we we got on, we went on to we graduated June fifth, two thousand and fifteen, and we were back in Nigeria July twenty first and started operations for a pilot August 3rd, 2015. And it was one of those things where we started out, I mean, we started out, in that two months, I learned about what accelerators were, uh, uh, hubs, the people that can give you money, people that cannot give you money. We did a financial model and we realized that we needed to raise like $1.5 million. I say Jesus Christ. I've not seen more than like $2 naira at once. And somebody talking about $1.5 million. It was kind of weird, right? So I remember we said, okay, so let us ask people for fifty thousand, see if they will give us. And they were talking, and people were like, really? Oh, MIT, 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 MIT. Ah, oh, yeah, fifty thousand makes sense for forty percent of your company. <laughs> I said, die! It's not possible. <laughs> you might as well come and give me salary. Let us know that that's what we're doing here. So I mean. um Luckily, we we applied to a couple um, accelerators and got into the Textiles New York program. So we actually got into the Textiles New York program before the application deadline because they were just amazed by what we were doing, which, I mean, I'm, I felt like, I mean, it's all cool, you know? So we came back, started out the business, and the goal was to get uh, get enough data to be able to show to investors that Nigeria is an interesting enough market to invest. This was before Paystack and everybody else went to accelerators. Um... So we did that, came back, rolled out. Went back to America, us, started the fundraising, started the accelerator program with the shop brochure. I can speak with your accent too, so, so spoke the English, did everything I needed to be done, showed all the financial models, and then went in thinking, oh my God, nobody will give us fifty thousand dollars seriously. To come out and thinking, hmm, if I don't collect one million from your hand, then I waste of my time. You know, it was it was a complete mental shift, right? And I think that's something a lot of people need. That's something I also appreciate about the American culture because they, they they focus a lot more on you are doing this and therefore you are valuable and can ask for what you should what you need versus a more Nigerian culture where you live in your father's house till you're 35. You know I have my classmates from secondary school who are driving Bentley and they this bus up and down. They don't have any work to their name, stuff like that. Where in the American the American this thing at 18 years you're not out of your father's house, like something's wrong with you. You know, those kind of different cultures. So there's a very different culture, um, and that was very helpful to us. Obviously, you create networks, and then you go on to risk capital. But there's a lot of critical things that happen along the line that obviously I cannot sit down and talk about in two minutes. I'm happy to have more conversations. See, I'm telling you, I'm happy to have conversations outside here. We're also hiring, so that's part of why we're having conversations.
1: Okay, so quickly, um, initial funding. So, it was predominantly American f-
2: investors, and um, we had money from angels in New York. Okay. Um, Lazaro Ventures gave us money. Texas Ventures gave us money. writer Capital gave us money. We raised um, one million dollars our seed round, okay. and between okay. then and now, we've raised another three hundred thousand dollars in grants, and we're doing a Series A right now, for which we had an announcement soon.
1: Okay. We like the exclusive on that. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Initial funding. Um, what was the problem that you noticed, and you know, how did you stop?
3: Um, so, yes, what was the problem that I noticed? And by the way, my co-founder, Topway Awashika, is also in the, in the audience. Um, because I think Medzaf is a great example of people realizing that there's a massive issue to solve, looking around and seeing that nobody's doing anything about it, and everyone just kind of coming together and joining a cause and joining a company to actually achieve something. So didn't even know Topway before MedZef. We met because we both cared about people having access to quality medication. Um, so my background, I'm born and... So opposite of some of the others on this panel. Um, born and raised in the United States. I had never been to Nigeria uh, or Sub-Saharan Africa before 2013. So that was... And I've been here ever since. I've actually lived full time in Nigeria since then. Um, my background in the U.S. was home healthcare agencies, so I was working in healthcare. So I had, uh, you know, great understanding of how the U.S. healthcare system worked. And all of my family is in healthcare, so you know, also come from a healthcare family. And wanted to go to business school, just kind of take a break, and then go back to business and. Uh, um, got a chance to travel around the world and go to business school in Brazil, and just fell in love with emerging markets. And said, "Okay, this is this is you know this is these are types of markets that you can make a really big impact." And everyone there kept saying, "I'm Nigerian, I'm Nigerian," and they're eating Yoruba food, and I'm like, "Wow, I've never been to Nigeria," and that's how I ended up showing up um, to Lagos. Uh, (laughs) five years ago. I just thought I'd come here, um, I'd do an internship for a couple of months, see what it's like, and then go back to Nigeria. Uh, So a lot of great experiences, um, but the biggest thing that happened that really stuck with me was that one of my friends during that time died from taking a fake malaria pill. And it just... You know, it it was an immense feeling of shame and guilt and sadness that I couldn't imagine a life where I go to the hospital or pharmacy and put something in my mouth and can potentially die from it. Um, But after that, it just opened my mind to the fact that there's this issue, and I kept then talking to people about it. I'd I'd say, well, you know, where do you get your medication? And I realized that a lot of people were bringing medication in their suitcases, and that it was typical that they would have friends or families bring medication in their suitcases from Europe or, you know, the United States um, for family and friends. And I mean, that's really weird. So you've got lines of Nigerian drug dealers with suitcases, and they're like moms and grandmas, and what, you know, what does that mean? You know, so that, you know, just kind of, uh, kind of trying to analyze, does that make sense to to have to go to another continent to get medication that you, for yourself, that doesn't make sense. And then I had my own challenges. I remember I had what ended up being vertigo, but I hopped from hospital to hospital because they kept saying I had malaria. And I remember, like, you know, my eyes are just going in the back of my head. And at one point, they just came and put me on the hospital bed and just prayed over me. And I was just like, where is the medicine <laughs> for the vertigo? And it really took I promise you it took me five hospitals to get a doctor to take, you know, take my temperature and like look in my ear and say, You have an ear infection. So, you know, it was it was it was a lot of, you know, experiences like that and then meeting people like Topwe who also had their own series of stories. Um, about just understanding how the healthcare industry differed from other places that they had worked in. And at that point, it was just like, well, let's just do something about it. So I, I think, um, so that was that was one thing. Um, we had our developer CTO in Portugal, never been to Africa before, but he thought also that people should deserve to have safe medication and and it was literally a team of people who just really 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 felt that what we're doing is big enough for them to invest their time and their effort and uh, so that if you're trying to start a business I think trying to build don't be afraid of building something just bigger than anyone can imagine because it's worth it Um, and so that that was my big learning from that Um, but as far as funding um, how did we get funding Um, I watched a lot of startups. So actually, I think it was like two, three years ago, I came to my first startup, Lagos, you know, to find out what it, you know, what's going on, um, in the ecosystem and to learn how I could, you know, plug in and, and be a part of building something bigger than myself. And I just would listen to case studies, listen to people's, um, experiences, try to learn from them. So when I started the company, we had a really set idea of how we were going to raise money. Um, so understanding, you know, term sheets and, you know, talking to people and just vetting it. And I just had so many different um, people who had raised money before. So I made sure to just surround myself with people like our one of our first investors, Bastion Goddard. I mean, I think they raised like $20 million plus, Aroko tv you know just making sure that i could have access to people like that who could then give me feedback on exactly how i needed to raise money um, but that being said i did go to nigerians first and said this is a, a company that you should be of course you're going to just invest in this right um but the honest truth is that our first investors were my friends um, my ex-employee, or my ex-boss, um, and an American in Silicon Valley that had just come to Nigeria once and decided to take a chance on, on MedZef. So we really did make money from, or we did, did raise our money from half uh, Americans and then Nigerians or mostly expats who had worked or built businesses in Nigeria. So that was a bit of a a sad thing, but it is what it is. Okay.
1: Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, So, what was the problem you identified? How did you first raise money? Okay. um, So a bit about my background. Um,
4: um, I've had some time working with a couple of organizations that uh, household names today. Um, so first, before the startup world, I worked with the likes of um, British Council as a web manager for two years and then joined Deloitte and was web manager for a couple of their websites across six countries. And then the first startup I worked with was um, Wakanao And this was in 2010 when they just raised $7.5 million from Tiger Global. And I joined them to... to create their web presence. So their websites, the mobile app, I was in charge of all of that for another two years. And then I decided that I wanted to take um, a new step out of online marketing because I had a background in software engineering. And I wanted to take a step off that to now focus on PR marketing, to focus on um, traditional marketing. So I was looking for opportunities around there and then I got in touch with the guys at Rocket Internet and was telling them, I think you guys should look at, this was in April 2012, I think you guys should look at Nigeria as a potential market, you should come to, leave South Africa where you are. I don't think the business is as big as what you have here in Nigeria. And they said to me, oh, we are here, let's meet tomorrow. I sent them a message on LinkedIn and I'm like, oh, let's meet tomorrow. I'm like, oh, Okay. And I went there for a meeting in Four Points, and then um, after a couple of conversations, I joined them as the first Nigerian employee, as director of marketing, just pretty much helping to set up Rocket Internet's presence in Nigeria. And then we then came up with um, two platforms, Sabunta and Kasua, which later merged to become Jumia. Um, So stayed with them for that bit. I was watching them raise money. So I was seeing the things they were doing, because I, I I didn't have that experience. If, as much as I was on the management team in Wakanda, there were a lot of things happening that I didn't know <laughs> what was going on. Um, but in Jumia, I had first-hand knowledge. I was seeing t- twenty-three-year-olds convincing people to put three million, four million, five million dollars in a business that's not up to a year. It was driving me nuts, and I was just watching and learning different things around how they position themselves how they talk to the investors the mentality of faster 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 their mode of operation which was different from what other businesses had so businesses set up they don't know their exit these guys know their exit before they even start and so everything was so i was watching all of that and then later on decided to um leave um did a stint with gtb to launch SME Market Hub, then joined Conga.com as vice president of marketing. And that was maybe the last major place that I said I was going to work, but I still eventually did that later. I joined Conga.com, set up the marketing team, um, worked with them for about a year, and then decided I wanted to do my own first startup. But my first startup was called Quick Gist. Quick Gist. It was a news aggregator that. So one day I just. And you woke up, and my wife used to wake up, and she would open Linda KG, Bella Niger, and all of those things, and she was just opening them consistently on different tabs. So I, it just give me an idea. What if you had a, an app that will allow all the places where you want to source your news from, you just gather everything to one place. And rather than opening several tabs, you're just flipping, you're scrolling from different sources. And pretty much like Google News today. So that... Had 200,000 downloads in, in, in four weeks. My co-founder then was um, Balumi of Kudi.ai. He's the co-founder of Kudi.ai now. So we built that in three days and launched it on 200,000 200, downloads in three to four weeks. I started looking for investors. I felt I knew how to get investors. So I started designing pitch decks I knew how to design. I was pitching the wrong way. But then I was very tenacious. So I would go for events like this, and I see investors talking. And I just want them to know my startup. I'll stand up, I'll raise my hand, I have a question. I'm not saying we should do that today. <laughs> <laughs> I raise my hand, I have a question. Before I would say my question, i would pitch and then I will ask my question. It didn't work. So because I was because of my experience in Conga, I then found an opportunity while I was speaking at the mobile web. Um, West Africa event. So I went with a colleague. I told him to to stay in the crowd and ask me a question uh, about my startup. Saying, that startup you had, how did you get 200,000 downloads in three weeks? And he did that and I got my first investor there. <laughs> the investor came to meet me when we were taking coffee. I said, that your startup, that you got 200,000 downloads in three weeks. How did you do it? And I raised $50,000 with three meetings after that. And so I thought that, okay, it's time to now go out and do big things. We'll conquer the world. Um, And then by the sixth month, I had used my house rent, my savings, to pump it into a startup that I raised $50,000 for. And it was already pointing to me that it was failing. There's so many things that I learned on that journey. But I didn't want to stop until I couldn't afford to buy diapers for my son. And that's when I realized I had to shut this down quickly and get a job. Um, it got so bad that my in-laws would ask me questions. Well, ask my wife, why did you marry this guy? <laughs> you know, you, 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 he was earning 800000 to a $1 and then he resigned. He can't buy diapers. So when it got so bad, so I, I then fell back to my old skill set of designing websites. I designed over 400 websites in my time. Um, for different organizations. I've designed websites for the wrong reasons too. I see a pretty lady I want to talk to. I can't approach her. I'll design a website in her name and send her the URL. And she gets the URL and it always worked for the guys out there. It's just a little key. So I designed so many websites and so I started looking for opportunities to design websites for people. So I ended up designing the current Guardian newspaper website, the current Business Day newspaper website. And that was where I was now able to push my team into it. And then later on, business day, acquired QuickChest. And my teams went into those companies. And today, the current team handling the online presence for Guardian and business day, a crop of people, 12 of them came out of, so the six, six came out of QuickChest. So that was run. That's how they survived that very low point in my life. Then um, that investor said to me, he had another opportunity. Somebody approached him. I wanted to launch um, a travel site whether I was interested or whether I should join him. I asked him how much he was going to pay me. He told me. I asked him how much we were going to pay me. He told me. Those guys were going to pay me close to $2 million. He was going to pay me about 300000 I told him, let me first work with them. And once I'm done getting money, I'll come back and help him build his idea. So I picked that other offer. And that was how I, launched. I helped the owners of Travel Better launch Travel Better. I did that for two years. We worked with about two million dollars. The lessons I learned with QuickGist helped me to make sure travel better then was at a stage where there was, they had six officers, they were doing well. And that was when Buhari's administration, this current administration, came in and said, "People should invest in agriculture." This was 2015. I got excited about what I was going to do with agriculture and i started looking for a farmer to work with but i kept on hearing sad stories so it's either i hear people say they put 20 million naira in a catfish farm and then water comes and sweeps everything and they lost their money i didn't have twi- i didn't even have 500,000 naira to put not to talk of 20 million that's like an investment in a startup that they would tell me water will come and move it away there were so many stories or that the farmer even does the work and he doesn't know where to sell and the harvest is wasted. Or, so those were the issues I was hearing a lot of people say. When I started doing my research on the farmers to work with, I then found that farmers had their own problems. Access to capital, so they're considered unbankable, couldn't access funds. Two was technical know-how. Um, so a farmer has maybe a pen that can do 10,000 beds, but he's only doing 1,000 beds every season because... He doesn't have the expertise to expand on that. He doesn't have money to expand on that. And then even if he does all those two things at harvest, he doesn't know where to sell. So I then discovered that that was a huge gap. And very quickly, instead of going in at this alone, I assembled a team of people around me, finance, tech, uh, finance, tech, or pre-core agri and then data. And then we then came together and built the platform called Farm Crowdy, um, it's just pretty much a crowd of, I was, when I was looking for a neighbor, just looked for a crowd of people coming together to farm. So I initially called it crowd farming. It didn't sound too, I wanted something compl- like you use Google and search for, you'll find anything. And so I flipped it around and called it Farm Crowdy. And that made more sense. And that was how we launched Farm Crowdy. The first year, uh, we, so we, we, we started identifying farmers to work with. And then the first farmer was a female poultry farmer 550 day old chicks we told her to raise them and uh, we're going to sell them she started in september we're going to sell them by christmas of that year she raised them she stayed in the pens she would sleep there just to make sure they had the warmth she make sure that um um snakes and all those things don't come into the pen and she raised them and she gave us back 500 and out of 550 she lost maybe only 20 we took those beds and brought them to Lagos. As we were bringing them to Lagos, they were, most of the beds were doing 3.5 kg, 4 kg. We didn't know that was wrong. That's what you sell when you're selling one-to-one. Everybody will carry the bed and weigh in like this. But when you're doing retail, they just want 1.8. So we didn't even know all this. So we And then we moved the beds and uh, the way the truck broke down, we lost 300 of the beds. We couldn't even tell her to break her heart. I mean, someone had spent four months making sure we got that. So all these challenges then allowed us to learn how to fine tune our model. And I mean, today we've done close to 600,000 birds. Our mortality rate is still below 4%. We've done 8,000 acres of rice. I mean, we have 5,000 acres of rice, of, of maize, and 2,000 acres of rice. It's grown from where we were, where we started, to where we are today. Um, It's been an exciting journey. Now, speaking about funding, I took a lot of the cue from what I learned in all of those places and tried to make sure we set out to do what we wanted to do in farm crowding. But I started with my own money. So I started saving. As soon as I knew I was going to leave Travel Better, uh, by February of that year, I started keeping half of my salary aside until September when we went live. So I used my money to pay for the initial place. We got a place that somebody called a, a garage. Um, but I didn't care. I, you didn't have to know our address. Just sponsor farms. That was all I was after. Um, so we got a place. I was The initial people were paying with that money. And when people started sponsoring farms, I started having data. Um, first mode, second mode, third mode, that I could now use to present on my pitch deck. And I started showcasing that. So we then raised um, $60,000 four months into Farm crowd. Then I resigned. At least there was some money. and we, I had better knowledge on how to manage it now. And I was a team, and I had put processes so that I don't mess up the money like I did in the previous business. And so, so raised $60,000. Then we raised... Um, um, we later got into Techstars. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, well, the Textas journey... I, so people get into accelerators. Everybody wants to get into an accelerator. People want to get to YC. I think the deadline is um, October 2nd. People know the dates. I, everybody wants to get into all of these accelerators. But I got into Texas and I saw so many startups. And I found out that if I... I, I told... I remember I went with Ifai, my one of my co-founders. I say, if we enter Nigeria and we don't raise money here, we are filled Because there's no way I can be in a place like this where people are excited about investing opportunities. And we don't raise money. That pushed us within our accelerator program to pitch to over 90 investors. 90. So some people pitch to 10, and they get 10 no's, and they are done. And they want to tweak their model. We pitch to 90. We got 75 no's. But we got 15 yes. And in those fifteen years, we got investors that eventually invested in us, where we're excited about doing deals with them, and that's how we raised our first uh, one million dollars. And later, on, we got a grant from the GSMA, and now we're also raising um, some more funds. Um, and I mean, we, we're raising funds where we funds because people want, even want people want to, to invest in farm crowding, not because we. Which really need that money, but we also see the opportunity to scale now that we fine-tune our model to the point where, end-to-end, we've minimized our risk to the barest minimum, so we want to take advantage of that and expand
1: our model. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I had another line of questions, but time is gone, so I'm going to open the floor up for questions from the audience. Anybody has questions? Okay, so, um, one, two, three, and four. Okay, so, Start with you. Uh, take all the questions first, or one at a time. Okay, so just your um your name, who you're directing your question to. Alright. Do you mind standing up? Is Do What did you say? You can sit down if you want. Okay, fantastic. My name is Oluwatosin. I run Money Africa. Guys, you're doing a great, fantastic job. I'm so proud of everyone. I'm going to direct this one to Vivian. Vivian, I see that you don't have a tech background. How did you feel comfortable um, choosing that tech um, co founder? I'm also going to send another one to you, Um, Oyeka. Fantastic job. So, um, the first $1 million you raised, after how many months or years had farm crowd have been operating. And then number two, how did you sort out the issue of regulation? I mean, it's a fintech company. How did you get regulation about raising funds to then invest in farms?
3: Um, so I'll definitely answer that question. I think it's a good one. I mean, um, we're in Africa, so there's... I mean, well, anyway, I won't, I won't say that, because you guys have a great um, platform over there uh, with lots of developers and access developers. But um, the reality is, is that we spent... A lot of the beginning of our company actually spending time in our customers' offices, their hospitals, and watching exactly how they purchase medications, how they manage their medications, gathering data. We started off the company with running surveys. Um, and um, really, tech doesn't need to – you don't need to start your tech journey with in a massive, flashy um, product, right? So what we did was we put up a website, a simple e-commerce website, and we started the company knowing that we wanted to build something as easy to use as Instagram, as easy to use as Facebook and Amazon, because when we went to hospitals and hospitals, even as far as Ogun State, we saw that someone in the building, the decision makers, the doctors, or the Um, pharmacists had access to a smartphone, and many times I would go into someone's clinic and I would see Facebook up, or I would see even Jumia and Conga up. So I knew, we knew that we could build something that was very easy. Um, for them to use. So tech platform, over 400 pharmacies and hospitals signed up to use that platform by just putting up something very simple. So that was one. Um, and then also then for the more complicated pieces of our business, it was more understanding exactly the pain points that manufacturers have when they're distributing medications and trying to understand where their medications end up um, in the market. It was um, watching hospitals and pharmacies and then using Excel to build simple ways to share information and then that is the basis of technology that solution we've built around it so i think built you know first of all just understanding at a very granular level exactly what the process is from the very beginning to the end um, and how and then creating great partnerships um, with organizations or other companies that can help you build what you need to build. So for example, our tracking and tracing technology from manufacturers that's rolling out, that's a partnership. We didn't have to spend the millions of dollars that they did on building that platform. It's already built and they're partnering with MedSAf. Um, we're in Google you know Google Launchpad right now, you know, partnering with large tech companies. And then, of course, being able to understand your vision extremely well so that you can inspire a great developer with 10 years of experience to invest in building. So, for example, our platform that we launched with, we never spent a penny on it. Joao didn't receive anything for that platform um, when he built it. He built it because he believed in MedSaf. So that's how you build a company in uh, anywhere without a tech background
4: okay uh, the one million dollars we raised in investment um how we were um eleven months old when we raised um one million um, and um, we 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 celebrated our first year anniversary we had already raised that money um so today farm crowd is twenty twenty one months old, so we will be two in November. Um, speaking to the second question now this is by the way, when I say investment that 's people investing in farm crowd for equity um, in terms of sponsorship we 've done close to six million dollars with Nigerians already till date in that twenty one months. but um, well when we started it was it took us six weeks to get five thousand um, dollars now, speaking to the second question about regulation, just when i i mean Mr. Bayer spoke about the fact that you've got to be tenacious. And he he mentioned clearly that um, there are times you get news, um, but people that are bold enough to take steps are those that will eventually become pioneers of different industries that we see today. With us at Farm Crowdy, when I wanted to start this, there was no template to follow anywhere in the world at that time. I mean, the closest I could look at was Kiva, in the u.s um that would fit exactly what i wanted to do so we then created a model and then first wrong move i went straight to sec and said okay do you have anything related to this that we can um, go under and they told us uh, we don't we don't understand what you're doing so just go and come back and then two days later they issued a statement and said this was before we launched this was two months before we even went live Anyone doing anything related to crowdfunding, we don't understand it. You do so at your own risk. I saw that in the papers. I was mad. Leave it, mad. I was really angry about it. And so it, we then went back and took out what looked so visibly like a crowdfunding model and changed it to more e-commerce style, where you can actually have one person with one farmer work um, on a project. And that was what we took. And then. Um, our first early investors, Rashid Olaulu, a former um, MD of Bank of, Bank of um, Industry. And he explained to us what UBA went through with something similar when they started doing some FX things around '94 when he was there as the director. And he said, just build it and make sure you do things properly and you are in tune with what is going on with them so that you can be in the conversations when they are ready for you, going to two years down the line, now they are interested, and now we're having conversations. And now we are also in the forefront of uh, looking at setting the tone for other platforms that will come, um, and also managing who even comes and where we're raising the barrier for entry, uh, because we're involved in the conversations today. uh, But if I waited for them, it would have taken
5: me two years to get to this point.
1: All right, thank you. Oh, you want to add something? To add something okay.
5: on. i wanted to add something on um, how you manage the regulator. Okay. Sometimes startups get so scared about the regulator that they decide to detour instead of actually confronting them. So when we were starting, there was no agent network. Um, uh, the Beyond Branches business we sold to InterSwitch, there was no agent network policy yet. There was no license created. That's but the beautiful the, the thing about the... network a,
1: that Paga uses now, the agent network. is that what No, the
5: about? one that InterSwitch... So InterSwitch has InterSwitch inclusion. So that was, that was the entity that uh, we started that eventually uh, merged with InterSwitch. But I'm using that as an example. When you approach a regulator that does not understand what you want to do, do the hard work of breaking it down for them. Don't get annoyed. Don't leave the table. If they still don't understand... Remind them that as regulators, there's a power they have. They can give you um, an approval that says, go ahead and start this thing, and then we will bring regulation later. So like he said, stay in the conversation, because eventually when that conversation comes up on the agenda, you will be a major person that will shape policy and thus create the expressway for your own business.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, Who's number two? Okay. Quickly, please.
6: Good evening. My name is Ifai. I run a business sustainability platform. Um, I think my first question will go to you. I want to know how. Yes. How. Okay, we are at a level where um, we are doing very well in what we do, helping um, small businesses become viable. But we are at this level where I want to understand: must you get a co-founder? Because. It seems all start off as saying co-founder. And I'm looking at if, based on what we are doing, the result we are getting, we are doing okay, must you get a co-founder? Secondly, in terms of um, as you are growing, at what level do you start to give out equity? And how do you measure the amount of equity you you give out? Then the other one was, okay, just um, one final
5: must you get a co-founder you must not you are not under obligation to if you are the guy who crafted your idea identified the problem and decided to start the necessary foundation for a business that solves that problem you are the founder now it depends on how you want to call a person co-founder because it's a nice to have name right so it is now left to you if you are the originator of the idea how you want to define the people who either come in in the early stages, or they're bringing money, or they're bringing sweat, how you want to define that, we'll leave that to you. However, note something that Bayer said earlier. Don't go alone if there are other good heads around that can help enrich what you want to launch. Otherwise, you will shoot yourself in the leg by just being selfish. Um, I think we answered that one
1: then. He said something about equity. When do you know when to give out equity?
5: Ah, okay. Now, it also depends on, uh, maybe that could speak sometimes to the greed in us. It's somewhere sitting far inside. Um, Do you want to go alone or do you want to go far? It's an important question. You want to go alone, you could decide that um, you overvalue what you have. Until you take what you think is diamond to the market, it just might be glass that shines very well. So you actually need to take it out there and let people who are professionals actually indicate to you what this really is. And you need to let tire hit the road. And when you are clear about the valuation, you then can estimate what anybody is bringing in. He indicated earlier he could laugh at what some people were bringing in because they had gone beyond writing code, building a platform. They had gone to the point of testing it. They had an idea of how people were responding. So anybody bringing X amount could be laughed at because they had an idea of what value they were bringing. If you don't yet have that scope, you either could undersell yourself or you could be in the case of what Oyeka described earlier – Um, selling chickens without understanding the kg and the retail principles you know so um, there is no hard and fast rule as regards what amount you give out but it's important that you continue to learn from people who have preceded you no need to make mistakes others have made learn as much as possible and step on the back of champions thank you very much Um, okay
2: sorry i have a question about the equity are you talking about employee equity or
6: co-founders Um, our platform is called Counselor. So what we do is, um we okay.
2: Don't pitch me. Okay, I think about employee equity. No, it's
6: actually both ways. Like I said, we are currently doing very well, okay. but is at we are at stage where we need to scale. And now, so what I'm saying, is, if I need to bring in outside investors or even there are certain people that we are trying to bring in into the, um on board, we business. are saying what we offer them so that uh, it doesn't look like five years down the line you gave us so much so little.
2: So investors, so when you're talking about investor equity, you typically, there's a few things that people don't do well before they go out to fundraise. You want to find someone who's going to lead your investment, right? Um, a lot of times you meet people who say, my company is valued at $10 million. I said, according to who? What's the valuation based off, right? Whatever valuation you have, you must justify that. So we're in the middle of fundraising. Investors ask me, what's your valuation? I say, oh, we don't have a valuation, no. It's a conversation. Why? Because if it's too high, you will run, Abi. If it's too low, you undervalue me, you will be too aggressive, Abi. So, why not I just let us be looking at each other and be smiling and toasting, and toasting and toasting and toasting and toasting until we agree on something? It's a negotiation, right? There's something called FOMO, the fear of missing out. You need to create that in your fundraising. So, that means you start fundraising. So, I'll give you context. Let me now shine small. We started fundraising at four months, closed around round at seven months, raised a million dollars, right? But you, you, but it's, it's conversation. The first time I meet you, I'm talking about fundraising. I'm telling you, oh, we're doing 10 trips a day, 20 trips a day. We have three drivers on our platform. A month down the line, we have 20 drivers on the platform. We're doing 100 trips a day. Ah, you might be, Your long throat to catch. Ah, these guys you are making progress. By the third month, I'm telling you, I'm doing 500 trips a day. Your fear is, if I give this guy one more month, he'll be making too much money for me to give him money. Right? At that point, he's willing to give me a very positive valuation. Whenever they ask for valuation, I'm still not giving you evaluation, because why? I cannot come and kill myself. Right? But that means you're you're sure that you're doing well, meaning that you're measuring your, you're measuring everything and working towards an actual goal. So it's a conversation. Then for employees, it's a question of value. If I want somebody to work with me long term, right, I'm going to give you equity that tells you to stay long term. So I'm going to give you, even if it's 0.1% I'm giving you, it's going to be spread out over five years. So you do the one-year cliff and then the four-year four um, um, payout. What the one-year cliff is, is you don't get any equity for the first year. We've agreed what your equity, but it doesn't actually vest. It's called a vesting schedule. It doesn't actually vest for the first year. At the end of the first year, 20% of whatever you're getting, or if you do a four-year vesting schedule, 25% of year vest, whatever you're getting automatically vests, meaning if you leave the company, now you understand? Do you understand? Now, after that first share, in our on a month-by-month basis. That way, you are here for that four years or that five years. And if you go, I collect the rest. And now when you have collected, you are paying for options. So, there will be a strike price on the option, whatever it is. It's usually a token price. You will pay it, your equity vest, you carry, you go. But you want to check out this book called Venture Deals. It will teach you a lot about fundraising, terminologies, um, valuation, those kind of things. Most people will not read it. You need to read it.
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Igeatiba is my name. I run a social enterprise that is poised to redefine and reshape the quality of water for domestic and industrial uses in Africa. Um, I want to say it's a privilege to be here.
2: What was the question? Uh,
0: yeah, my question is very simple. Um, the reason why so many businesses in Africa don't actually go, I mean, transform to generational businesses is actually one of the problems this uh, event is actually solving. That is bridging the gap in the ecosystem. So I want to ask if you are available for mentoring because there are a lot of people that are doing very great things. You understand they don't know how to package it. They don't know how to put it together. (laughs) Unlike my sister that came from, you know, it's a different climb here. Thank you let me just keep it that simple.
2: the Sisi hope
3: yes, and and like I said, when I came to Nigeria i didn't really know um, much, so I, I spent a lot of time asking questions and just saying, "How does that work really why how tell me more and like to the point where people are like this is just a learner, you know like this is someone who's just constantly learning, so I have to give definitely have to give back to all the people who spent time to completely just answer my questions, stupid questions, great questions, um, over and over and over again. So I would definitely say I'm, I'm open for mentorship, and I think that the only way that you can build a company, whether it's in Nigeria or anywhere else in, in the world, is by you know just finding people who can give you feedback that you can vet your ideas over, over and over and over again. And when I tell you that I went to people over and over again, I literally went to them every single week. And, and also some of our great investors, they said, absolutely not. Your business sucks. It's a horrible idea from the very beginning. And I had to keep going back to them and saying, well, this is, this is what we have today this is how I've addressed this issue. This is how I've addressed this issue issue, until they were like, okay, great, here's the check. So I think, yes, absolutely mentorship and everyone should think about that as as the way to actually build their business.
4: Let me just add to that, that, I mean, everyone is looking for mentors and we're all mentees to other people, right? Um, What I've seen in my time is um, the best mentors I've had at those that I created value for them. My own mentors, the best w- ones I've had, I created value for them. I wasn't looking to get a loan. I also had something to give them. So maybe their wife has a bakery. I create a website for their wife. I've solved one problem in their bedroom. And she, the guy is happy with me. All my mentors, have, before they become mentors, I would have had lunch. Dinner because I've built a relationship before I say, Be my mentor. So it's important that people see this because today I go to a couple of places, people say, Oh, come and be my mentor. I usually put them to a test and ask them to do a couple of things, and only those that do it are the ones that I'm interested in. And it may not happen the first time. She talked about um, persistence, it may not happen the first time. But I have to see that there's some value at the end of the day I get from you that makes it exciting for me to share my own knowledge with you. So I think this is important for everyone because next thing everyone says is, uh, you be my mentor. I, I get emails. So I want you to mentor me, uh, Facebook. So Because I'm, I'm, I have an open-door policy, even online, people send me tweets, send me stuff on Facebook, send me stuff on LinkedIn, especially when you've raised money.
3: Yeah, there was someone that just, I just, just a thought, there was someone that um, sent me a message. They found out that we raised money and they were like, you know, I, I'm in college right now and, you know, I, I, can you please give me some money because I saw that you raised money online and, and I'd like to, I'd like to really, you know, complete my school studies. And I was just like, you know, I worked in high school and I worked in college and I worked till 10 o'clock at night and i so definitely just don't have an entitlement attitude which i think is what you're saying like you have to work really hard for to be able to get something back especially time or uh, more value from other people and you should think about that um not anyone particular but just in general
2: okay i mean i'll just add something to that since we're all being honest um Mentorship makes a lot of sense. I think it's great. What i found is that a lot of people come, oh, I need help with this, or I want advice on that, CTC, CTC. You give the help, you give the advice. They don't use it for anything, and then they come back with more questions and more help. And after a while, I'm like, um, get out of my office. You're actually mad. And we find a lot of people do that a lot. You know, they, they feel like, oh, because they're not paying you for the service, they want to come and hang out, want to come and gist and gist and gist and gist. I think it's also important that whenever you do those kind of mentorship relationships, you need to be respectful of the fact that whoever you're spending time with has so many other things that they could be doing and they've chosen to spend that time with you. So when they do provide value, take it, do something with it, it and show that you've appreciated for it because you're not paying them, right? So it's one of those things where you have to do that. There's also a lot of work that people also can do outside just going directly to mentors. There's spaces where you meet people who can potentially mentor you. Right? So I see CC Hub is doing a fantastic job. Making spaces available for people to like work, learn, etc. Um, workstation is doing something very similar. Um, lead space is doing something very similar. Lead space in particular is doing a lot of good work. So and these networks too. Okay, so there's as part of fundraising, you need as people to do introductions for you, and the investors that want to do the introduction for you, you're like ah, you might as well become my daddy or my mommy, right? Because of how the kind of nice things they have to say. Organizations like Space CC or BTC do that same thing, right? Where they create that um, trust or they put that stamp of this guy is someone who is serious that you should take, take like you should actually pay attention to. Because you think about it, I mean, look at Hannah. Someone is asking her for school fees. That's kind of ridiculous, right? But there are a lot of people who are also sliding into her LinkedIn for love or for whatever the case may be. And if you're sending messages to those kind of platforms too, she might not just have the time to take a look and say this is someone I should talk to. So going through places like CC Hub, Lead Space, Workstation is also a place to actually meet people and actually build those mentorship networks. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Basically my question is when pitching your business, my name is Godson. Yeah. When pitching your business to an investor, what are the things you must never things you must Armoring, why present? I'm. I'm directing my question to Mr. Oyeka. And um, the other, and and you too, sir.
2: yeah. Thank you.
5: Okay. So, going from, permit me to flip your question. What you should say, what you should not say. It sounds like. I need to reel out like seven points and seven uh, pros and cons. Let's just make some facts clear. Whoever wants to invest in your business wants to see the clarity, understanding, and doggedness in your eyes. Forget about all the nice ways you have spoken, the good documents that somebody helped you knock together. That's why they usually want to meet you. It should radiate. It should come off you. And if you have that conviction, believe me, even if your English is not good, it will transcend your English problem. If you have not the requisite experience, it will still transcend it because investors are ready to take a risk in a guy who has taken a risk already. So, I'll give you a quick example. I work now for Africa's Talking. And this company, by year one of its existence, had gotten profitable. It only got money this year, very recently, like the eighth year of its existence. So, why will it need money if it's gotten profitable earlier? It calls itself Africa is Talking. It has a desire to cover the whole of Africa, and it's doing it slowly with its own profits. It is then clear when you're talking to an investor what his money is coming to do because you already have a direction. They need to see where you are headed. So what you say, what you don't say, you could read up certain books. They'll, They'll help you a bit with it. But first of all, be very, very legit with what you're doing and don't be deflated when you hear a no. It might be a rubbish idea you presented, but don't get crestfallen the first time they tell you it is rubbish. When you keep hearing it's rubbish and you keep checking, when the truth comes to you, please adjust and fine tune. But if you still continue to check and you are sure what you have has yet has not yet gotten to the right investor who will understand and take the right interest, please continue that journey.
4: Do you need more? Because <laughs> um, okay, let me let me come from the angle. So, um, from what I've seen, I mean, in addition to what um, Mr. Seaman has said, from what I've seen um, across different startups, um, there are a couple of things that investors mm. like to see. In addition to a passionate entrepreneur. Um, There are other things they also like to see. Remember, investors are human beings. And relationships always count. That's why most times investors you do cold emails to don't really respond. But those that an introduction is made to first, tend to look at, at least look at the pitch deck before they will say yes or no, whether they contact you or not because of the introduction, because of the connection. So just put that somewhere. Um, Some of the key things I have seen over time is they like to know, they like to see a team. Um, A team that has history before the idea, a team that has common passion on what they are driving today, and a team that has the competency to actually execute on the idea. So i mentioned team three times. The other thing they like to look for is um, the market size. Um, how big is your idea going to really change the world? Is it going to have an effect on only people in this room, or is it going to have an effect on people in Lagos, or are you going to be able to scale this model to other parts of Africa and have impact in other lives? Your market size based on your idea. The other thing they like to look at is um, the actual idea, the actual model. <clears throat> how is it crafted? And how are you able to take care of the risk associated with it? Um, beyond all of this is they want to see traction. And this is why it is important for entrepreneurs from day one to document your progress. Your first month versus your second month versus your third month. And they're able to see you go from from 10 bikes to 100 bikes, to 1,000 bikes, you know they like to see traction and see progress, uh, that you're actually making progress. Now, I'll tell you something we also did. So apart from all of these things, I'll tell you something we also did. Because I understood the effect of relationships to all our investors, whether current investors or potential investors we're having conversations with, I send regular stakeholder updates where I tell them across the team what is happening per time. As much as I can divulge out there without being scared that competition will take advantage of you, assuming it gets into their hands. I send these regular stakeholder updates where a potential investor that I want to be on my deal in the ninth month starts getting my update from the first month, just telling him what we've done in terms of progress. Pictures, text, sometimes videos on YouTube, just showing the, the progress across the company financial progress, um, operational progress, marketing progress, people progress, uh, 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 technology progress. And while setting these updates, I have so if I see an investor asking, When are you doing fundraising? I can say the update. We actually had somebody ask us about uh, fundraising. We're not interested now, but these are conversations we may want to have in the fifth month. I've actually told everybody that got that update that in the fifth month from that time we'll be fundraising. And then by the fourth month, ah, we actually had two, two requests now. We're looking forward to the fifth month. And by the fourth, so this is I'm counting that, so fifth, fourth, third, second, the second month say 60 days to raise Like, you know what? We have so much interest. We're opening the round on Susu Day. Our first funding round, we wanted to do $500,000. We got $300,000 in three days. Commitments. Because they had consistently gotten updates from time. The relationship wasn't built on, I need your check. Relationship had been built over time from, you're getting my updates. Re- we're talking, and you're able to connect to it what it is we're doing. And so by the time I say we're raising money they already understand what we're using the body for. So these are things we should take as feedback um, and we use to prepare ourselves um, while also having the passion. So now I, I'll end with this. We had a company come in um, on Sunday. They actually forced me, not this Sunday, the previous Sunday, uh, that they wanted to have a conversation. I had looked at the fact that they had a competitor we're talking with these are big corporates, these are businesses that, um, that are worth over 500 billion dollars and above. And we had a conversation with one. I know they're interested in a deal. So I had another conversation with another. This is another thing I found with investors. Competition drives interest. I had another conversation with another. I was bullish, the kind of thing you're saying. I wasn't, this one I said I would I would bambooz <laughs> this guy, and then at the end of the day, I tell him, you know what, this guy is actually looking at us. And the guy was like, are you, are you serious? Japanese. Are you, are you serious? And it was like, can I get a deck today? Can I, can I get a deck today? And those conversations went faster than the other guy. Competition drives the taste. If any deal you see close quickly, most times competition drives it. It means there's something. And sometimes there's some investors, they won't even look at, they just want to hear this person is in the deal. Uh, let's rope in. If it's in the deal, we're all rope in. If they hear this person's out of the deal, they will ask questions. We're all out. So those are things you're going to take into consideration. Finally, pitch to the right investors. You can't be an impact-driven business, and you're talking to a fintech man that wants just profit. Or you're you're all for, for money-making, and you're telling the person that is looking for impact how to invest. In. So, those were lessons I learned with my 90 pitches. You, you pretty much focus on your sector. Look for people that are doing something similar. Find out who invested in them. Use, Crunch, use Crunchbase. Use as many tools as you can use out there. Watch the stories that are coming out on TechCrunch. And see who is investing right now. It tells you maybe they have they have a fund that they are executing on. And that's someone you may want to put your pitch to, especially if they are focused on Africa, African startups. There's some startups, some investors they, they want to invest in your sector but they are focused on the US market. Or they are focused on the European market. If you're pitching to them, pitching to them, pitching to them from now to tomorrow. If they are honest enough, they'll tell you, Okay, maybe you should talk to somebody else or they'll just give you a quiet no without answering you. So
3: I just want to add one thing to that. Um, When I started raising, I was so passionate about the idea and explaining exactly um, what we were doing that I forgot to ask for money. Um, (laughs) So there were a couple of times in my first pitches um, and the first money that we raised, they were like, okay, okay, so are are you ready to, are you getting money? I'm like, oh yeah, that's true, yes, yes. So now, um, we had investors come in our office today, and I said, I want $100,000 right now for these facilities. And I'm very, very clear of exactly what I want, and I'm not afraid to ask, give me money, and this is what I'm going to use it for. So that's just uh, different.
7: Hi. Good evening. My name is Judah Tebe, and I run uh, VoucherNet Limited. Uh, firstly, I want to say congratulations to you all. I see some of you are even serial entrepreneurs, two, three times over, having turned around your businesses. But um, I want to draw from the keynote um, speaker, who asked, or you know, asked us to be quite realistic in our expectations. Um, from the stories you guys have told us about having, you know, had successful funds raising, be like, say, oh, no, don't blow. And uh, I wouldn't like that, you know, some of us live here thinking, shit, if I just raise, I don't blow. There are commitments to what, um, you know, you guys have gotten from your investors i imagine would you be kind to you know elaborate as best as you can and quickly i think people are uh time is out what kind of commitments do you have with your uh investors and is profit really you know uh, being pushed at as something that you guys have to get out and get out now and are you really churning out profits already or you know the money is still being and what time i mean i guess before anybody puts money with you they are already seeing when you are saying hey the bottom line is going to be positive and they can start recouping their money thank you
3: i can answer this question um, so Topway knows when we first started raising money, it was extremely painful um, because t- healthcare care was not um, what everyone was interested in at the time. It was fintech and logistics and e-commerce and stuff like that. So people were seeing that those businesses, um, that's where they wanted to put the money in. Um, and we did find ourselves in some situations where um, we... We did find ourselves in some situations where we were getting terms that we, you know, just thought were not indicative of the value of the company that we were trying to build. Um, so there were times, um, especially in the beginning, we bootstrapped um, up until a certain point and then we started to accept money where we turned away, you know, lump sums of money that would have been and looked like they were extremely helpful to us but um it was that knowledge up front about what the terms actually mean um and what that will do to your your the founders equity and what does that do to equity um and what's the what is our value and just being really strong in that that we deserve something better that allowed us to say no um to money and we turned that away um, and then now that we have VC, so we, we have like an angels, friends and family round, but we do have also a VC in there, um, a venture capital uh, investor in there. And I think that um, everybody and, I, and we're probably the biggest pressure, um, the biggest pressures on our own shoulders about the fact that we want to, you know, accelerate our growth. Um, and, you know, revenue is the most important thing to us uh we are also very clear that we need to build a strong foundation so of this company so that it can be sustainable and actually scale so that's that's always uh, that's something that we've absolutely struggled with is you know having the right people in place you know, not uh, striking deals that are unfavorable to the, to the growth of the company over just quick revenue. You know, those are all things that we've had to try to figure out and navigate around. Um, I think one thing that Topway and I are really excited about right now is that we've come up with really out of the box ways to kind of hack growth, um, without necessarily making some sacrifices for uh, some of the things that we think are important to build so i just think also just keeping an open mind and being creative about how you can grow your company quickly and still keep up to the pace that you need to keep up if you take investors money but then also be able to have you know say no to the things that you know do not fit your core your core values so i really think it's a balance based on you, the individuals uh, that make up the company and I do think that it's important for people to definitely know that raising money is not easy and these guys are very lucky um, sorry well I mean not lucky like you know what I mean the millions you you raise the millions right so then you're in the millions uh, which is a set a special subset of African companies right? Why are you laughing It's just how many how many companies have raised one million dollars in the first year right so you can count them on your hand right so um you know, so it's not it's it's so we don't want to make it like it's uh, something so common. But I think that if you if you fight and you're persistent and you have grit and you believe in what you're doing, um, and you're not afraid. I have no shame. I can go up to anybody and just be like, "Excuse me, how are you?" Um, so get rid of that um, just kind of hierarchical thing that Nigeria has going on, and go talk to people. That you might not think that you ever have the right to go up to, and go and just go after it. I, I think you'll you'll be able to find your way. So that's what I would. Ha- that's how I'd answer your question.
4: In addition to that, is um, you talked about commitment. Um, one thing I, it's very, it's it's very inexperienced and short-sighted entrepreneurs that raise their first money and close shop. And pretty much start buying all the best cars in the world. And immediately they move from Ikorudu to to Banana Island or, or the new one now. They already have properties there. It doesn't make sense. Because when you're raising money from investor A, he wants to make money. Some investors, their exit may not be to wait for you to make profit. It may be, who's the next investor that's going to come on this deal after me? where he's gonna, you're going to grow the business to a valuation that will allow this investor coming, come in and then you can raise more. And maybe I have my exit even before you make profit. So investors come in for different reasons. Most of them come in for this. The commitments on the deals usually are tied around milestones that you have created while pitching, that you want to do X, Y, and Z. By this time, and then you'll be ready for the next round, or the business would have scaled to this point where profit makes sense. So, um, I mean, I, I'm speaking from my experience, and I'm sure it's the same experience with many entrepreneurs out there who know what they are doing, who you see raise the first round and raise the second round, and then raise more money. Usually, you'll find them diligent to the milestones that were set. Even grants that we call free money, nobody will give you a grant just because they want, to, they like your face. They are usually milestones, and these grants don't just come all at once. So, you hear somebody, g- I raised two million dollars in grant. He may have raised to commit the the grant um, donor has committed two million, but maybe he's getting it in trench one. You get two fifty, or you get five hundred, and when you meet the next milestone, you get the next two fifty. When you the next milestone, and these are the details that we don't see out there. You know, so commitments are there. Short sighted uh, founders are the ones that mess it up in the first instance and start doing things beyond the milestone. If your milestone was there to buy a card, then okay, we don't have a problem. But I don't have any investors who will invest that you should go and start um, changing your whole lifestyle. Investors want to invest enough for you to continue to be hungry enough to chase the dream. No investor will invest at a point where you just pretty much deviate from the core of what you originally set out to do. So those are things that are hidden in the commitments. And those are milestones that are set out there. Usually what you will notice is maybe, um, so now they're employing more people because they've more money, because there's a bigger vision, because there's a bigger milestone. I use FarmCloud, for instance. Our milestone to raise the next funding wasn't supposed to be now. But what was it supposed to, our goal to for the next funding? is not supposed to happen around now. But we've met our milestone for that goal next year in July. And so when I was pitching, I was telling investors all the milestones that we've set, we've crushed everything. We're exceeding our goals eighteen months ahead. It's time to take this the next level, and that's why we're raising again. You understand? So I, maybe I just make that clear. And this is why you will find the the, 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 the the experienced founders, the experienced entrepreneurs, most of them, watch them, they don't change their lifestyle. It is the most times, maybe first timers or those that have, I can say, short sight, that just change their lives.
1: Sir, someone else, just. You'll be the last. Let me
5: find out whether he wants to say something. something. I want to say something. (laughs) Okay. Okay, So, um, just one last thing. When you are bringing other people's money into your business, be ready to invite other people's opinions. Africa is talking gut money this year, and this is the first time the founders who have been running a business for eight years and they have become like family are inviting an IFC to their board, are inviting an Orange Ventures to their board. And please note, while you might not like how the conversation starts to look at this point, they didn't come to play. Also, look at the good side, which is they will bring in further structures to help you achieve your goals faster.
1: Okay, sir.
2: So, I mean, talking about um, responsibilities, profits, skill, all that stuff. From what I've seen from a lot of other founders and from just general people in the market, as a business, you're pursuing one or two things. You're either pursuing skill or you're pursuing profitability. You typically cannot pursue both simultaneously because skill means you're going to spend a lot of money. Profitability means you're not going to spend a lot of money. If you're spending, you're making a lot more money than you're spending. But typically, when you're scaling the business aggressively, you're typically spending a lot of money in like capital expenses, a lot of sunk costs, that you will not get the money back like in a short period of time. So, when we talk about responsibilities, fundraising, when the money goes, things like that, you need to think about that. So, what am I pursuing? Am I pursuing profit? Am I pursuing skill? I'll tell you right off the bat right now, we're pursuing skill. We pursued profit for the first two and a half years. We've shown that we can be profitable, right? Once we start to deploy a lot of capital to skill, that goes to the window, because how are you going to be profitable when you have spent 200 million on like 100 or 200 motorcycles to roll out? Who Who is paying up? That? That's a scam now. Where where do you want to scam it from? Do you know what I'm so that's one or two things. At the same time, I was talking about responsibilities. So how you raise your round initially determines if you're able to raise more capital. So there are things called liquidation preferences, um, like full ratchet, half ratchet, um, convertibles, um, common shares, preferential shares, those kind of different things. If you have terrible liquidation preferences in the seed round, best believe that any investor who's coming in your Series A will be getting at least... Liquidation preferences. So as a founder, you can get to a point where you've raised one billion dollars. Sell your company for ten billion dollars and you will not make any money because of these kind of terms. Go and read venture deals. So that you now like it sounds like I'm selling the book, but you actually need to read and learn about that stuff. Because when we were raising our seed round, we got multiple term sheets. And there was one that we saw and we said, blood of Jesus, and I moved our hands from it. Right? And there was another one where like we're willing to have a conversation. Now, that first term sheet, they didn't mean anything bad by it. We just felt that they were so, it was so anti-founder that we weren't even interested in having a conversation, right? You want to give us a term sheet, like completely revamp that term sheet, let's see if we can have a conversation. Because it was one thing where you also have to figure out, like as you're fundraising, talking to investors at ETC, there are people who are going to waste your time, especially in these Lagos, you know? They will carry you to a cool Atlantic, you drink Coke, you drink wine, give you cocktails, scatter your head. And then at the end, the guy is talking that, oh, you know, I don't really have money to invest right now. Maybe let's talk down the line, ETC, funds do it as well. So typically, there's a rule of thumb for us. If I'm spending 30 minutes with you, you're giving me $5,000. If I'm spending one and 30, this was for round, of course. Now you have to be giving me big boy money, you know what I'm saying? If we're spending, having a second meeting, that second meeting we're conversing, and at the end of that second meeting, it should be pretty clear to me that if we have another meeting, you are going to be sort of committing to giving me money. If after two meetings it doesn't look like you're going to give me money, there's nothing you want to talk to me that will allow me have a third meeting with you. I'm just not going to do it. If you want to talk to me, no, let's talk over the phone. There's Skype. There's Facetime. But I'm not going to spend another 30 minutes on the phone with you because you have to think about it. There's an opportunity cost, right? There's a lot of money looking for a lot of companies to put money into. So you also have to be efficient about your time. Otherwise, you'll raise money forever, right? So you need to decide if you're pursuing profit or um, scale, right? You also need to determine if an investor is serious or not. One way to determine is how many deals are you doing a year? An investor who says they're pretty active should be at least doing one deal a month. Right in Nigeria, let's call it six deals a year, so one every two months. Right, what is your average check size? If an investor's average check size is fifty thousand dollars, and you're trying to raise three million dollars, that person is still very far from you. Right, so you need to be looking at somebody who's in an average check size of, um, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars. Right, um, so you talk about bringing people to the table. Imagine managing fifteen different investors in your company, at just the seed round, and then Series A. You're managing another 10. That's 25 total, right? And then series B, it kind of goes on and on and on. It's a mess. Before you know what's happening, you're running a private company that feels like a public company because Amaka woke up this morning and said that she wanted to disappoint you with an email. Do you get the point I'm making? And it just goes on and on and on. Um so typically you want to have I mean series seed round, it's nice to have a lot of different people. Um, try as much as possible to try and get an institutional player in there because they help you with, like, thinking about your terms, thinking about full-on investments, ETC. Full-on rounds, you definitely want to keep to like three to five people maximum so that, that way you can gain the value that's that you're required to gain. You can talk to people and actually develop it, get a lot of value and time and all that. And beyond that, when you're talking to investors or looking at a group of investors you want to come on board and terms of like, requirements, ETC, you don't look for people who are just going to give you money. You talk about regulation. Regulation is a network-based thing. You need to know people who can do introductions and talk to people. And in our market like Nigeria, people at a certain caliber, 60-year-old, 70-year-old, ECC, a 25-year-old will not introduce me to a 60-year-old man and will take me seriously no matter who that person is, even if he's his son. They will be in that category of our children's friends. Do you understand? For them to take you seriously, somebody at that level be in that introduction, which is also where your fundraising comes in. You want to have specific people in there based the kind of value that they can bring to the table.
1: Thank you very much. Please put your hands together for them.
5: Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned to our next episode. Subscribe to us at Startup Lagos on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Visit us at www.startuplagos.co.